Today, I want to talk to you about names. Now, when you move, you have to learn the names of a whole bunch of new cities and how to get from one place to another. But more importantly, in a church like this, you have to learn people's names. And so that's something I'll be working at, and my wife will tell you that it will be at work. I think that was one of the reasons why I was in the military, because in the military, everybody wears their name and their rank every day, so you know who people are immediately. And it's easy to remember, oh, okay, that is Sergeant so-and-so, that is Colonel so-and-so. And so learning people's names um, will be part of what we do. Now, we all know that, and have heard stories about actors who change their names. There are uh, people who change their names, and they just have one name. It's almost like they become a set of a person, a brand, that they just, you know, in the United States we have a, a number of uh, singers who just have one name. Now, our niece, Melissa Welshel, on the 14th of April, is going to become Melissa Williams, and, and she's in her 40s, she's getting married, and she, it's amazing to see this young woman that we have known since she was born, so excited about getting a new name and her identity with this wonderful man, Seth, that has come into her life. Now, sometimes cities get changed, don't they? Do you remember in the news, I'm looking around and I'm trying to, okay, um, do you remember when Peking became Beijing, when the Chinese said, you're going to pronounce it our way? Because, you know, lots of times when people hear names, particularly from uh, the East, from the Orient, uh, some of you maybe have run into students from Japan or Korea or China, and they'll pick American names because they say, my name is just too hard for you to understand. Um, now, sometimes they change their names because other people have come in to change them. We think about um, Bombay becoming Mumbai um, in India. And then in the United States, we had New Amsterdam, which because of a European war became New York, named after the victorious, uh, ultimately, prince who would become Charles II. But they named it after him then. Uh, now, this passage in Exodus 17 is about the change of a name. What The last part of it, he says, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because they were quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? God intentionally renamed something to remind them that at one point in their history they had quarreled with God. He gave them a place, a piece of real estate, to remind them that they had tested him. And so it was a geographical reminder. Now one of the things why I think he does it at this point is because if you go back in Exodus just to the previous chapters, and they're complaining, and, and what does God do? Well, there's three things that we know from the chapters before 17, is that he takes bitter water and he makes it sweet. He provides them with quail. He provides them with manna. And one of the things in Genesis, I mean in Exodus 17 that happens is that 
they move along, and the text is very clear, as God commanded. In other words, they were going where God wanted them to go. And they get to this place, and they look around. They look around at the resources. They look around at where this large group of people... And when I say large group of people, we know from numbers that there were about 600,000 warriors. Now, depending upon doing the math, what they usually say is that each warrior has a wife and five children. So you think about this large group of people moving, this large group of people that needs water every day. See, God's providing the manna, but he's going to provide water in another way, and they look around and they don't see it. Now, the Geneva Bible, which was the second English translation and was originally published before the King James, it came after Cloverdale's Bible um, in the 1500s. And it says, when in adversity we think God is absent. Now, that is, that is a comment that I think is often true of us, not just in the 1500s. When in adversity we think God is absent, then we neglect his promises and make him out to be a liar. Because what happens? Panic. They look around and they can't see a solution. They don't know what God is going to do. And so they panic and what does it do? It produces anger. And then anger produces falsehoods. Because they say to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses cries out to God, what shall I do? But notice in this passage what we have is a response, a gracious response. God's grace and mercy to a quarrelsome people. Now, why do we look at passages like this? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it kind of gives us a, an overview of why we should pay attention to the Old Testament. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, when God had the prophets, the writers of the Old Testament, write it down, it's for our instruction. When God breathes out his word, it's for our instructions. Now, there's two major concerns, I think, in this seven-page, seven-verse, excuse me, seven-verse passage that we're looking at. And that is the idea of intercession, standing in for someone else, and the idea of the presence of God. Now, it's very clear at this passage that leadership has intercessory responsibilities. Moses brings a angry and ungrateful people to the Lord. He does not allow their behavior, their rebellion, their anger to interfere with the fact that he has to bring their case before the Lord. I know in my life, because I have struggled with anger, that very often when somebody else gets angry, I just want to walk away. I want to say, ah, that's not my, you know, that's not my problem. I mean, what Moses does with these angry people, 
And I imagine he, he, he thinks that they're really angry with him because what does it say in the text? It says he thinks they're going to stone him. I mean, imagine being a leader and then saying, God, what am I supposed to do? I think they're going to try to kill me. They think you're trying to kill them by bringing them to this place. But yet Moses had that conviction that, one, God had called him to be a leader, and two, that God had brought them to this place. They weren't here by accident. They didn't get lost wandering around. They didn't miss the turn sign. They were where God wanted them to be. You know, angry people are hard to love, aren't they? But sometimes, as Christians, as leaders, we need to figure out how to love them back because oftentimes, angry people are people who have been disappointed. They were disappointed they couldn't have easy access to water. Now, see, it's interesting that they looked around and they concluded there was no water rather than taking it to Moses and, and taking it to God in prayer. Be willing to say, okay, God, you brought us here. What is your solution? The people didn't do that, did they? They were angry. And so we have to be careful that anger does not distort our sense of God's presence in our lives and our, our God's presence in a congregation or anything like that. Now, I'm trying to read and understand Scottish families and cultures and things like that, so you're going to hear me use some illustrations from my experience. Now, stories about families in the south of the United States, one of the characters, and you talk to people, they think that anger is a member of the family. That anger is there and it's passed down from one generation to the next generation, and they forget what the original disappointment was that caused the anger. But they're just angry people, and they recognize that. And that's why you see in many stories, people will try to escape their families, because what they want to escape is the consequences of anger in that family. Now here's a case where God is going to respond through his grace and bring them water. We're going to get to that in a moment. But yet... He's doing it to the people who basically are still angry with him. And so sometimes I think in his grace, he reaches through our anger, our failures, our disappointments. And he expresses his love and his care for us. Most anger is rooted in disappointment. And most disappointment happens because of expectations or assumptions. They basically, I think, were cruising along. God was providing, he provided quail, he provided manna, you know, and if you had manna on, on, on Saturday, you had to cap double of it because he would stay until for Sunday, you know. But if you gathered too much on a weekday, what happened? Everybody in the, would know you gathered too much because it would smell bad. Now, when we look at this and we look at the response of Moses and the response of God, it reminds me of a passage in Romans 12. Listen to what Paul says. If possible, 
So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the things that this passage brings up and reminds us about anger, how many times do we see in stories of families the idea of vengeance? That they've got to get what they perceive as justice, that they have been wronged. And what this passage is saying is, can you leave that to God? I think one of the things about anger that we're looking at in this passage in in Exodus 17 is that they are not willing, you know, their disappointment that they can't see the water source. They're not willing to give that over to God. But they get angry at God and then at God's spokesman to Moses. Now, what is God's solution? Look at verse 5 in this passage. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Here's an important part. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water will come out, and the people will drink. Now, one of the reasons why this passage is so important for Christians is because Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, And and they drank from the same source, the spiritual rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, the most of them, God was not pleased, nor for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, when we think about the rock following them, what do we know from Exodus? What followed them? Really, what led them and they followed Was it not the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day? And so when that came down and he struck the rock through the cloud, because we believe it was the daytime, and the water comes out, God is standing between them and the source, and he is taking, you know, he's saying, hit the rock. Now later on we're going to have a duplication, and I think it is another time. When Moses will disobey and hit the rock twice, he won't trust God and just hit it once. Here, he does what God asks him to do. Because it is only when we think about, you know, how can a rock follow people? How can a rock lead people? If that rock, who is Jesus Christ, is that pillar of fire and smoke, and then the water comes out, Now, one of the things about Jesus Christ, and we think about what he would say about himself, 
in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so Christ identifies himself and invites us to come to him to receive the Holy Spirit, to receive the water that we need because we thirst after him. That he is what we need. Now let's go back to Exodus 17. Cloth called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That question goes back to the early chapters of Genesis. What did Adam and Eve, what were they created to do? They were created to walk with God. It says he, they walked with God in the cool of the evening. When they disobeyed, what happened? When they believed the misinformation of the serpent, God pushed them, or the angel actually, pushed them out of the garden, pushed them away. But yet, after that time, God pursued his people, to bring himself back to them, to build the bridge, to send the lamb, to send the high priest. And so when we think about us as the church at Grace Community, we need to ask the question, is the Lord among us? I would say that the Lord is among us. And that's something to remember. And I think oftentimes we can be distracted by our surroundings and forget that God is here. One of the things in our lives, and I, you know, I'm, kind of the, in the older generation, I don't think it's necessarily new. Because I think people in the 60s were as distracted by things as people today are distracted by things. That help us not think about the fact that God is here. There was a monk um, named Brother Lawrence who wrote a book about practicing the presence of God, which is another way of putting about is the Lord among us. And do you know where he would practice the presence almost every day? Because he would volunteer to wash the dishes from the meal, because then he could have some, what we think of as peace and quiet. Nobody's going to bother the dishwasher. So he could sit there and be washing the dishes and think about the fact that he was in the presence of God. I have friends who have smartwatches who they go off about every hour, so that it kind of reminds them, you're in the presence of God. There are ways besides memorizing scripture and remembering scripture to remind us of God's presence in our life. See, if we soak ourselves in the word of God, if we worship together, if we remind ourselves of our union with Christ, then we cannot allow the distractions of life to follow, fog our experience in having the presence of Christ, having God in our lives. 
And of course, Christian community worship is one of the, the strongest things that God gives us to remind us that we are not alone, that we are in the presence of God. So we can learn from, we can learn from experience. If anger comes to you because of disappointment, remind yourself that you are living in the presence of God and not allow that anger to take over your life. Not allow that anger, that disappointment, to become an idol. Taking the place of God is the most important thing that you are thinking about. And so we should deal with our disappointments. We should deal with disappointments by reminding ourselves that we are not separated from God. Disappointments will come. A lot of my disappointments in my life comes because I make assumptions that aren't realistic and then so they don't happen. And so I'm disappointed because I've set myself up to be disappointed. We need to be very careful and very aware of how things like anger and next week we'll look at anxiety because this is the second in a trilogy of sermons that come that started with Psalm 95. Remember I said in Psalm 95, they reached back to Exodus 17. Next week, from Psalm 95, it's going to reach forward to Hebrews 4. And you'll see that in Hebrews 4, in parts of chapter 3 as well, that you have parts of, the, of Psalm 95 quoted three separate times, as if the writer wants to make a point, and I think that's important. And so we worship because Christ stood by the rock. Christ stood in our place. Christ is the fountain of living waters. Now, I wrote down because I, one of the things you'll find is that I, I keep wanting to go, but I know I need to stop. Because sermons never end. It's like at the end of a chapter of a book, you know that there's the next chapter. And so this week, as we think about what happened there in these towns that were renamed because of quarreling, you know, that to have God rename something to remind you of a failing. See, lots of times when we want to have memorials or name things special, we want to celebrate a victory. But God says, no, I want you to remember this. And you'll find in the Psalms and in other places what happened here, this quarrel, is brought up again because oftentimes we have to acknowledge in our own lives we quarrel with God. We're angry because we've been disappointed, because we've made some assumptions that were not true. And so now we, we wait and we want God to apply to our hearts the fact that he is among us. And that is one of the most important and, I believe, practical things Christians can think about each day, every day, moment by moment. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the promises that you will never leave us and forsake us. We pray, Father, that you will now Take this passage and help it to shape our hearts.
And when we are disappointed this week, we pray that you will help us to respond with grace and mercy as you respond. That we respond out of love, not out of anger. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.